Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Rachel. Well, um, welcome to church. My name is Pastor Pete. It's great that you can join us. Um, my wife and I recently celebrated 20 years of marriage, and uh, I finally don't feel like such a fraud when people ask us for marriage advice. Because I'm a pastor, probably for the last 15 years at least, uh, since I've been a pastor, you know, we've run like marriage preparation courses, we've given advice to relationships, and to be honest, I feel like a fraud for most of that. Because I feel like I've only been married for, what, five years? What kind of advice can I give you? Well, finally, we're at 20 years, and it's not, it's not as long as some of you here, but I finally feel like maybe we have some good advice. You know what I mean? Well, I recently found um, some advice that an old couple who'd been married, and take, note this, 65 years. Imagine that, 65 years of marriage. I think when you get to 65 years, there's not even any stones or precious materials that mark it, right? Because 60 is like diamond. So what's 65? What's more precious than diamond? Who knows? Anyway, this is what their advice was when someone said, how did you stay married, happily married for 65 years? And the wife said this. She said, we are from a time where if something is broken, we fix it, not throw it away. Just think about that. We are from a time when something is broken, we fix it, not throw it away and presumably just get a new one. You see how the times have changed, right? I mean, just two days ago, my office chair broke and I hopped on Facebook Marketplace and immediately got a secondhand slash new one. Why? Because it was just going to be too much hassle to fix it because it was like a metal thing and I didn't have a welder, I couldn't weld it together, so I just forget it. I'm just going to... When your com computer breaks, often it's cheaper just to get a new one than to replace that part. Right? It's really hard, and we just don't bother fixing stuff. This is our day and age. Now, that's all and well. It's just the way that the market is. But do you realize, in our generations, we carry that attitude into the non-tangible things, the non-stuff that we buy. So we, we think about that with, with, with study. We think about that with work. You know, this job isn't working out, just get a new job. I don't like the course I'm doing, I'm just going to do a new course. We just chop and change. We don't think about fixing, we just get a new one. And how much more so do we do that with relationships? And maybe this old married couple is onto something. The reason why so many marriages break down today, relationships just don't get fixed, people just get a new one. But you and I know that there are some things that are so precious that we have that we actually we'll just need to keep fixing, right? If they're precious to us, we'll keep fixing because they're not replaceable. So meet giraffe. Uh, giraffe is a toy. I won't name which child because they'll get embarrassed. But this child has had giraffes since they were a baby. And you can see I'm holding up one of giraffe's ears. 
because Giraffe not only is really running out of stuffing, he's kind of looking skinny now, but he keeps, you know, ripping apart. But Giraffe is precious to one of my kids. And so Karen just the other day had to sew that year back on. If it's precious to us, we'll keep fixing it. Church community is that precious. You got that? Church community is that precious. Because the church, the body of Christ, we're not talking about the building or the institution, the people of God were purchased by God at what cost? Just what cost was it? It was the cost of the death of God's only son. That's how precious it is. Now, last week I said um, during response time that the nature of church community should make us expect brokenness, yeah? We should expect that it's not a perfect community. The church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. We're broken in our relationship with God and we're broken in our relationships with each other. But here's the thing, if church community is precious, then when something is broken, what do we got to do? We have to fix it. See, what happens when brokenness enters into our relationship with each other? We have to fix it by the help of God. It's not something we can give up on because it is precious to God. So that's what we're doing today. Today we're going to look at the heart issue. Right? The series is on community. Today is on the heart and we're going to look at forgiveness. What happens in our hearts when things are broken between you and me, between me and you. And next week we're going to get practical and look at the hands. What do you do practically? What are the steps when conflict and hurt does arise? But today we're going to focus on the heart, and the sermon's going to be a little bit different. We're actually going to pause throughout for response time. All right? Let's pray and let's ask God to minister to our hearts, because we're going to really need the Holy Spirit right now. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uncover what is deepest in our hearts, because we need you to work invisibly in places that we can't see, others can't see, but most of all, we often don't have control over our hearts. So please do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Following your outlines, I actually have three points. Um, My third point is actually point C on your bulletins of point two. So anyway, we'll get to it. You'll realize we actually have three points. The first thing, um, before we start, I need to say that uh, I'm not going to try and deal with everything today. We're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about forgiveness within the church community, all right? And I'm just going to limit it to that. So it's going to be narrower. It's not forgiveness for everyone. It's particularly forgiveness for your brothers and sisters within the church community. It may not be your church. It may be a fellow brother or sister outside of church, but we're talking about amongst Christians. I'm not going to be dealing with cases of criminal offense, someone's committed a crime, or significant cases of abuse. Right? Not that what I'm going to say is going to be not applicable to outside of the church or abuse. It's just that those things are really more complicated than that. And I just don't have time to deal with that. Now, having said that, though, there's still going to be 95% of the personal problems that we have amongst church is still going to fall into what I'm going to deal with. 95%, really. Right, this is the stuff that actually will rip churches apart. A friend of mine told me about a church that they used to belong to is overseas where the leadership had a fist fight over conflict. Think about that. And this might be you right now. You might not have had a fist fight, I hope, with anyone. But you might be right now have experienced really deep conflict with someone from this church or maybe from another church. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced that. And just one last thing. There may be things in this sermon that will be a trigger warning, a trigger for you. So this is a bit of a trigger warning. If you've gone through significant hurt, right, it may be that afterwards you'll need to come and talk to myself, Pastor Marshall, you may even need to go see a professional, right? Just to let you know that um, if at any time that kind of brings up feelings or hurts, um, please come and talk to us afterwards. All right, so that's just a bit of a, before we start, let's have a look at Jesus' parable. I'm not going to go through it in detail. It's pretty self-explanatory, right? So Peter, Jesus' disciple, asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times. Seven in the Bible is a symbol of what? Completeness. So even seven times, whether you take it literally or symbolically, he's saying a lot. And notice Jesus' reply, No, I tell you, 77 times, or another translation is 70 times 7, which is 490. But the point isn't the exact number, it's that Peter says 7 and Jesus says, No, I want completeness of completeness. He actually really means 
unlimited. How many times should I forgive my brother or sister? Right? Wrong question, Jesus says. There are no limits. And that sounds huge, right? So Jesus tells a parable to explain. The parable has a simple message. One servant is shown great mercy. But the servant doesn't show mercy to someone else. But the big comparison is, of course, of how much each servant owes. So I think our translation has a servant owed the king like bags of gold. Um, literally, you'll see a little footnote in your Bibles, 10,000 talents. A talent is a monetary equivalent of 20 years average labor, a wage for a laborer. 20 years average wage for a laborer. That's one talent. So one talent, let's just use today's you know, random sum, let's say $65,000 or thereabouts is the average wage for a laborer. 20 times that is $1.3 million. That's one talent. 10,000 talents comes to $13 billion. $13 billion is what this guy owed the king. But then someone else owes him money, right? It's a few silver pieces, literally a hundred denarii. Now, a denarius is the daily wage for a laborer, which, let's just for argument's sake, say it's $250. All right, so a hundred denarii is $25,000. You've got 13 billion, 25,000. Now, let's think about a hundred denarii, $25,000. That is not nothing. I mean, not many of us would be willing to just part with $25,000. If someone owed you $25,000, not many of us would be willing to say, forget about it, right? That's a car, a pretty decent car too. So our offenses against each other, Jesus is not saying they are nothing. As you think about the hurts that someone has caused you, he is not saying they are, not nothing. They are nothing. He's not saying that. It's just the scale of comparison you see. 25,000 versus 13 billion been great, hasn't it, uh, that uh, there's been a lot of money raised for the bushfire. And a lot of celebrities have chipped in. Fantastic. Chris Hemsworth, a million dollars. Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian, the, the, the company founder, CEO, one million dollars. Good on them, right? That's fantastic generosity. But you also need to know that Chris Hemsworth has a net worth of 130 million dollars. Now, one million dollars is still a lot. It's still like one percent. That's huge. Mike Cannon-Brooks has a net worth of $8.8 billion. So $1 million is, again, generosity. Don't want to, it's fantastic. Love what they're doing. But $1 million in $8.8 billion, I, I didn't calculate it, but it's probably like a little bit more than pocket change. You know what I mean? Like, it's the scale of comparison. See, Jesus' message is saying, yes, $25,000, it, it does, that, that hurt. That sin against you is significant, but you cannot possibly compare the greatest sin, the $13 billion that we owe God. However great God is asking you to forgive that brother or sister who sinned against you, it cannot compare with the sin that God has forgiven you. And that's why Jesus says, if you will not be willing to forgive your brother or sister, and notice this, from the heart... You cannot expect that your Father has forgiven you either, the Father in heaven. That's a big, big call, isn't it? You see, I take it that the head part of this sermon is easy. You know this. You know the parable probably, and you can understand it. Today, though, we're aiming for the heart. Jesus says, unless you forgive your brother and sister from the heart. Now, the heart doesn't just mean your emotions, right? The heart in the Bible is not just your feelings. It includes your feelings, but it includes your mind, your motivations, your will, your desires, and of course your feelings as well. It's the inner you, the heart. And so this is what really needs to shift in our hearts. That's point A and B for you on point one. The first one is this. In our hearts, we must get a hold of this fact that all sin is sin against God. All sin. In Psalm 51, David the king, ancient Israel king, he's just committed adultery and he's arranged for the murder of the, the woman's husband. And yet when it came to confessing the sin, remember David said to God, against you, Lord, alone have I sinned. Now he's just killed a man and committed adultery with this man's wife. You would think that he sinned against them. He has, and 
right? Again, this is poetry, this is song, he's, don't take everything literally. But in his heart, he realizes his ultimate sin is what? Against God. Because all sin is sin against God. Now, how does that work? Why is that the case? Why is it when you hurt me and I hurt you, it's ultimately against God? Well, here's it. Here it is. It's because we live in a universe created and governed by God. And so there is a divine law beyond na- national laws, the laws of Australia. There is a divine law beyond personal rights and wrongs. Let me give you some illustrations. So imagine, uh, you use a personal relationship to manipulate a government employee, right? You manipulate him or her to fall in love with you, to trust you and to share national secrets with you, and then you take that secret and you sell it to a foreign government. I know, it's like a spy knee. It is, okay? Now, on one level, think about it. On one level, you've betrayed and hurt that person. You manipulated them, right? Made them fall in love. Betrayed their trust. That's a huge thing. It's an interpersonal thing. But on another level, you know and I know that you've committed what? Treason against your government. Because you've broken a higher law. It's a bit like that. Okay, give you another illustration. This one's put very close to home. My kids are playing games together, which uh, they have to do in the holidays to keep themselves busy. And I give them instructions that they are to play fair and be good sports and not get into arguments. Much easier said than done. So imagine that one of them cheats. Now in so doing, they break the rules of the game. And in so doing, it creates a huge fight amongst the siblings. So what's going on there? The rules of the game are broken, but also they've hurt and damaged relationships among themselves, right? There's hurt, there's sin against each other. But above all that, don't you see, the cheater has sinned against me. You see that? The cheater has sinned against me. Why? Because in our family, it matters how we treat each other. And I said, I want you guys to play fair and get along. As the father of this family, it matters to me. So this cheating and these fights were ultimately also against me. In God's universe, you see, in this world He has made, He cares so deeply about it. And He has woven His creation order into it so that it may flourish and that we may have joy and it may bring Him glory. And so therefore, every sin, every damage, every offense in His universe is ultimately against Him. I hope you're starting to appreciate that. Now, I think deep down inside, we want that as well. I mean, think about it. When it comes to something like climate change, like the big social issues of our time, climate change, human rights, or stopping the trafficking of children or women, or drugs, or going to war. Think about these big social issues right now. Isn't part of, don't we want our government to be accountable to something more binding than the United Nations or a Paris Agreement? Isn't that part of the problem? Right? Government says, all right, we agreed to this, but no, now we're just going to play by our own rules. Don't we want there to be a higher law? Well, God says there is a higher law. When I sin against you, I sin against God. When you sin against me, you sin against God. And here, when it comes to forgiveness, when someone has sinned against you, their first and most important offense is against God. And so, point B, our sin against God far outweighs any sin against others. The Bible says that God is pure and perfect and holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is like the UV light room that you go into and you thought your clothes were clean until it shines with the UV, uh, you know? And then you see, oh my goodness, it's so dirty. All these stains show up. Well, He sees everything. The Bible says He perceives our thoughts. He knows your motivations. Sometimes you do the right thing with the wrong motivations. He sees behind all of our actions. See, how can you even begin? How can I even begin to add up just how much sin ought to be on my account when it comes to God. Like, it's just, it really is 13 billion compared with 25,000, isn't it? Man, that's just the quantity. See, sin isn't just quantity, it's quality as well. Because the greater the person, the greater the offense, yeah? I mean, for example, um, don't do this at school, all right? But imagine you're at school, 
and you slap a fellow student in the face, you'll probably get in trouble. You should. But then imagine you go to the principal's office and then you slap the principal. It's suddenly a greater offense, isn't it? Or they call the police on you and you slap the police officer. You go to the court and you slap the judge. And because we live in the Queen's country, you slap the Queen. No one wants to do that. We love the Queen. But you see, right, the greater the person, the greater the offense. So it's not just quantity. It's, it's God. It's the universe's creator and ruler. And we have, every time we sin, whether it's against you or me or against God, we slap him in the face. I'm going to get uh, Becky up here. Because what we're going to do is, um, as I said, we're going to pause throughout the sermon. At the end of each point, we're going to do response. Because this is actually not about head as much as it is about heart. So as Becky plays quietly in the background, I want you to take some time and I'm going to guide you through some reflection and prayer. So why don't you just kind of bow your heads, if you're comfortable, close your eyes and let me talk you through. I want to begin firstly by prayer. Lord, we just pray that right now, as we process some of the things that I've said. Above all else, you might show us your holiness. Holy Spirit, reveal the heaviness of our sin against you. Right now, where you are, just consider how great our offense has been against the righteous God of the universe who is holy and pure and dwells in unapproachable light. The God who, if He were to take everything we've ever done, thought and said and right now show it as a YouTube video on screen for everyone to see, we would want to dig a hole, bury ourselves in it and never come out of it again because that is the shame of all that we have done and He sees everything. Because unless we can really grab hold of how great our sin has been against God, we'll never truly understand how to let go of hurts that others have committed against us. So right now, Father, I pray that you will, by your Spirit, make us mourn. Make us truly despair of our sin. It's like a burden that we might carry that weighs us down so much that we can't even stand up before you. Show us that, Lord. But we don't want to just end here, do we? Because right now, what we want to be doing is just imagine that burden, that burden you carry on your back of all the sin that you've ever committed and you will ever commit that is on your account against God. But then Jesus comes and he takes that burden and he carries it and he walks to the cross and he is bleeding and dying and crucified for it. Because Lord Jesus, we ask you now to show us how your crucifixion, your death, your resurrection has dealt with sin once and for all. You took all of that burden for us. All that we owed you, you canceled like the great king in the, the parable. You said, don't worry about it. I've taken it. I've paid for it. All the justice, all the anger, all the wrath, all the hell that we deserve, Jesus took. I want to show you some passages on the screen. You can just keep your head bowed if you want to. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. So right now, just that... That the sin that you can imagine you carry, just Jesus is taking that and he is taking it and he's dumped it. As far as the east is from the west, he's removed that. Or as Isaiah says in this next passage, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. 
Or how about this one? You will again have compassion on us. He will take your sins and He will tread them underfoot. He will hurl all your iniquities into the depths of the sea. By the way, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, today you can have that forgiveness from God. Everything else may not be applicable to you today, but this is applicable to you. And by the way, if you don't really feel like you have much to forgive other people, you haven't really, you will one day, but maybe this point is still applicable to everyone, right? Jesus has taken your sin and he's cast it into the sea. And look at the verses of some of these songs that we sing. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Or how about this? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me Father I just pray right now that we might really appreciate how much you have forgiven us because here it is friends until we do we will never really understand how it is that we can let go of some of the hurts the really deep hurts that God wants you today to let go of but it starts with this all sin is sin against God Our sin against God far outweighs any other sin that others have committed against us or us against others. And God has taken those sins and He has cast them into the ocean, never to rise again. So let's go to point two. Thanks, Becky. There is a debate about whether forgiveness between us, you and me, each other, is conditional or unconditional. There is a debate and... You know, different people fall on different sides of the debate. Uh, it's whether or not someone needs to repent before you can be, forgive them. That's conditional. Or whether you are called to forgive, or God is calling us to forgive, no matter whether they repent or not. Now, I'm not going to wade into the debate. Um, I actually think both positions have a lot in common, and three things at least they all agree on. Number one, the willingness to forgive or us offering forgiveness is unconditional. Both agree that regardless of whether or not the person repents, I ought to be willing to forgive. I ought to hold out forgiveness. That's agreed. And that in itself is really hard if you've been really hurt. Secondly, they both agree that even without repentance, if I, in my heart, have hatred or bitterness or malice or evil thoughts or revenge, whether I take real revenge or I just imagine it, both positions agree that those kind of things are itself sinful. No matter what they've done to me, no matter whether they've repented or not, right? Thoughts of bitterness and revenge and hatred are wrong regardless. And both positions agree that reconciliation, right? The restoration of friendship, of love, of that is conditional. Both would say that's conditional. Reconciliation is conditional. All right, so they both agree on a lot of those points. But the first, most important thing is that the offer of forgiveness, the willingness to forgive, is unconditional. Whether the person repents and is sorry or not, I ought to be willing to forgive. And that itself is really hard if you've ever been really hurt. You need to know that the word to forgive in the New Testament is a translation of two separate Greek words. The New Testament was written in New Testament Greek. The first word is the word aphiemi, which is the idea of letting go or literally sending away. It's actually used as one of the verbs for you know, if someone is to send away his wife, i.e. divorce them, horrible. But if he does that, that's the word, afiemi, letting go, sending away, putting away. Or it can be used of cancelling, cancelling a debt or an offense. It's the word used in Matthew 18. The second New Testament verb for forgive is karizomai, which uh, is actually from the Greek word for charis. Charis is grace, or charity is where we get the English word from. And so charisma means showing grace. Those, both those words are used to translate in the English as to forgive. And really, I'm going to look at one after the other. So the first one, the idea of forgiveness is letting go is point two. 
right? Forgiveness is firstly a letting go, and that's the central idea of Matthew 18. Letting go, cancelling a debt. Forgiveness is like cancelling a debt because, you see, sin is like a debt. A lot of us may know the Lord's Prayer. You may know it off by heart. Often we remember it a little bit differently to what it is in the original. In the original, it's forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or as we have also forgiven our debtors. Because we don't like saying debts, and half of us pronounce debt with the, with the, with the B instead of the silent B. Um, most of us say forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's how I've learned it. But literally, it's forgive us our debts, because sin is a debt. Have you thought about that? Sin is a debt. Now, why? I'm not going to quote the Bible right now. I'm going to quote a, an author uh, from the book, The Kite Runner. If you haven't read it, it's a great book. He says this, one of his characters says this. He says, there is only one sin. I'm not necessarily agreeing with that part, but just have a look at what he says. There is only one sin, only one, and that is theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man, you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband. You rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. There is no act more wretched than stealing. Now again, it's not the Bible. I don't agree with it completely, but he makes a really good point. Helps us see why sin is debt. You see, when we sin against God, we rob Him of honor. Don't we? When I sin against you and you sin against me, a debt is created because I owe you for what I took from you, whatever that thing is. And that also helps us make sense of our experience of hurt, right? I mean, why is it when someone has hurt you, it plays in your head? Why do you feel bitterness and anger? Because deep inside you have lost something. Isn't that right? Like, if you didn't lose anything in this hurt, you wouldn't be grieving. You wouldn't be angry. You wouldn't be bitter. You've lost something. Something was taken from you. And there is a sense of justice that demands payment, wrongs that should be righted. It's because sin is a debt. That's why we feel the way we do. But here's the thing. Jesus is saying, we've got to be willing to forgive. This first sense of forgiveness is what? We've got to be willing to cancel someone's debt. Let it go. And remember... This willingness to forgive, this offer of forgiveness is unconditional. doesn't matter if you think forgiveness is conditional or unconditional. Both are agreed. The willingness to forgive, the offer of forgiveness is unconditional. No matter what, no matter who, no matter if they've said sorry or not or will say sorry or not, I've got to be willing to let that debt go, cancel it, not hold it against them, not demand justice, don't call on them for payment, don't desire their suffering until they've paid it. At our Bankstown congregation last week, uh, the service leader, Jeff, some of you might know Jeff married to Sally, he tells of this, uh, this car accident, completely his fault. He bangs into this woman's car, and uh, he's really nervous, and he's even arranged for his insurance company, he's paid the excess, but the woman writes back and says, look, don't worry about it, right? If it's got enough time, actually just get a refund from your insurance company, because she was willing to buff out the damage and pay for the for the repair of her own car and just completely let Jeff off scot-free. It was an amazing story. Helped Jeff understand the nature of grace, okay? Um, and he tells the story. It's much better, him telling it. So ask him about it some other time. But right, it was a great example of someone who was owed something and being willing to say, look, let's just let it go. Now, I've never experienced that when I've crashed into someone. I wish I had. would have saved me a lot of money. Now, it's a big deal, but it's also not that big of a deal because a car is not a person, all right? But you see, though, in order for her to do this, she had to take on the cost for herself. Like, she actually had to pay for, right, the buffing out of her own car and the materials it costs to fix it or perhaps just drive around a car that's never going to be quite the same. So she's cancelled Jeff's debt, but she had to take on the debt herself, bear the cost herself again, that's a big deal, but not such a big deal 
because a car is a car and it's not a person. If you've been wounded really deeply, it's not so easy, right? Because you know deep down inside that in order for me to wipe out your debt, to forgive you, I've got to then take it on myself. It's going to cost. Someone's got to pay. But now I have got to pay it. It's free for the one whose debt is wiped clean, but it's costly for the one who wipes out the debt. That king who wiped out a $13 billion debt in Jesus' parable. It was free for the guy, but it cost the king $13 billion. You see, someone always pays. And here's what's the difficulty. Letting go of someone's sin against you means that you've got to be willing to pay it for them. And that's hard, isn't it? I'll tell you what, sometimes it seems impossible. And so we're going to go into response time again. Because, again, the head part is easy. But if you've ever, and if you're currently in a situation where you're like, I just can't let go of that bitterness. Someone has sinned against you and deeply, deeply hurt you. No matter how hard you try, and you know God calls me to forgive, God calls me to, and you just can't, you can't let it go. Well, you know what? It is impossible. You can't, right? On our own, we can't possibly offer that kind of cancellation of debt. And so right now, I'm just going to call you to, again, bow your heads and close your eyes if you feel comfortable. Because we're going to ask God to help us. Father, I pray that right now you might do what is impossible for us because we've tried and some of us have tried so hard to let go of hurts and we just can't do it. It just keeps plaguing on us. The debt is not something that we can just let go of, wipe out easily. So Father, help us. So right now, if, if, you, if you very consciously know someone has sinned against you, someone has offended you, someone has hurt you, Why don't you imagine what they've done against you? And it's probably quite easy for you. You could list it out. Or imagine that it's, it's, it's a list. You've got their list. All the things that they've done against you on a piece of paper. And you're clinging on to that piece of paper so tightly. It's in your fist. Because as you think about all these things that they've done, you just find it impossible to let go. Well, right now, I want you to imagine the Heavenly Father coming, taking your clenched up fist in His, and slowly pulling apart the fingers. And He says to you, my child, I know it hurts. I know the debt that it's created, the hurt that it's caused you. But I want you to put it on my account. Anything that they've done against you, they've done against me, child. I want you to put it on my account. And let me carry that. Because my son paid for that. And because they are also my child, I've been willing to let go of that sin against you, as well as the billions of mountains of sin that they've committed against me. But I've also done that with your sin. So child, let it go. Unclench that fist. Let me have that list. I want you to imagine him taking that out of your hands, you willingly letting it go and allowing the Father in heaven to take that list and nail it to the cross and then to throw it at the bottom of the ocean. So, Father, help us to trust you enough to let go. Whatever offenses, whatever hurts, today to let go. It seems impossible for us, Father, but so was the death of your Son. It achieved the impossible because he paid for all of our sins and the sins that this person has committed against us. So help us today to let go. In Jesus' name, amen.
It may not solve all your problems today. Chances are you're going to have to process this. If you can go away from today when it comes to someone's offense against you, just with this prayer, remember someone said to Jesus, I am willing, right? Help me overcome my unwillingness. Or I do believe, help me overcome my disbelief. If you can just go to God today and go, I, I am willing, deep down inside I am, but I find it so hard, help me overcome my unwillingness and allow him to do that. That would be a really good thing today, even if you don't get 100% of the way. All right, final point. Remember, the other side of forgiveness is showing grace, right? It's a charity, charis word. Grace means undeserved favor. When it comes to finding things hard to forgive, it's always because we have a sense of justice, don't we? You've done something against me, justice has to be done. Something has to be righted. And so we're thinking about rightness, wrongness, dessert. Not dessert as in yummy desserts, but, you know, what's deserved. But grace by its nature is undeserved. And that's the foundation of God's forgiveness. He gives us what we don't deserve. If God wanted us to talk justice all the time, He would never have forgiven our sins against us. Instead, He puts it on Jesus. And so, this is not going to be a long point before we get to response again. I want to show you some features of God's grace to us in Jesus that you can work out how this applies to us in our forgiveness of one another. But let me just list them down. I'm not going to comment on them. When God shows us grace, He is the offended one, but He takes the initiative to reconcile. So good that He did, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God repays offense with blessing and prayer for the offender. Jesus prayed for those who were crucifying him. God doesn't demand perfect sorrow or a perfect apology before forgiving. Oh, thank God for that. Imagine if he needed the perfect apology before he forgave my sins. God doesn't require us to identify and name every sin before forgiving. Well, again, thank God for that. Where would I be? Where would you be if he had to, oh, I'm only going to forgive those that you've listed. God doesn't keep a record of wrongs and He covers over a multitude of sins. He continues to forgive repeat offenses. And He can be justly angry at sin and yet have tender love and compassion for the sinner. I'll let you work out what that might mean when it comes to showing grace to each other. For some people here to be like, yeah, I get it, it's not that hard. I want to say to you, you just wait. You haven't been that hurt yet, and it's going to happen. Expect it. This is the nature of church community. It's precious, but it's broken. So you haven't been hurt already? You will be hurt. You haven't been hurt that deeply already? You will be hurt deeply. Okay? So expect it. That's why this topic is so important. And again, it may seem impossible for you if, You've been hurt that much. God does ask the impossible, but He asks the impossible because He has already achieved the impossible, all right? Jesus died for all of our sins already. And so by His Spirit, He can achieve the impossible. Um, final response time, and all I'm going to do here is going to read to you a fairly long excerpt from a book. If you've read it before, it's a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, and probably a lot of us haven't because it's quite an old book, um, do read it. Corrie Ten Boom, pretty much half of her family were killed for helping to hide and protect Jews in the Nazi period. And um, she was sent to a labor camp where her sister and her father died. Let me read to you from this and I'll get Becky to play in the background. It was a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to a defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. 
Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. She's Dutch. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their things, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next moment, I saw the blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me. Hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner amongst those thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do. But I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I've had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who are able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple, simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And most of you, some of you may have heard that story before. Let me read on because this next bit surprised me because I've forgotten. She writes, And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. No, I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. 
If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them afresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to Him, He teaches me something else. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought that having forgiven the Nazi God, this would have been child's play. It wasn't. For weeks I seethed inside. But at last I asked God again to work His miracle in me. And again it happened. First the cold-blooded decision, then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends. I was restored to my Father. Then why was I suddenly awake in the middle of the night, hashing over the whole affair again? My friends, I thought. People I loved. If it had been strangers, I wouldn't have minded so. I sat up and switched on the lights. Father, I thought it was all forgiven. Please help me do it. But the next night, I woke up again. Father, I cried in alarm, help me. His help came in the form of a kindly pastor who heard my confession of failure after two sleepless weeks. Up that church tower, he said, looking out the window, is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the bell ringer lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong but then slower and slower until there's a final dong and then it stops. I believe the same is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts just keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. And so it proved to be. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversation, but the force, which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out of them. They came less and less often and at last stopped altogether. And so I discovered another secret of forgiveness, that we can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. We're going to stand, we're going to sing our final song sing about God's grace to us. We're going to do something a little bit uh, tricky. We're also going to be at this time uh, giving out the Holy Communion because we're a bit short on time. We're going to pass that out during this last song. Don't eat it and don't drink it yet. There's still a bit I need to say by introduction, but I'm going to get the helpers to come up during this song. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then please join us now in the taking of the Holy Communion. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, just observe what's going on. It won't be meaningful for you just yet. But I'll come up and say a few things after the song. So just hang on to the bread and hang on to the cup. And we'll eat and drink it together in a short while. Let's stand and let's sing. Um, the songs are a little bit old. Uh, we haven't sung it for a while, but um, I felt like it was really appropriate. Um, so please sing along if you know it. Um, uh, or, or use it as a prayer for you if, if maybe you're not so familiar with it.